Say now, say now. You're tuned into the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host, Devon Pouncey. We are here in the city of Portland, Oregon, at the Momentum Studios. Myself, Spencer Shea. Mm. What is it? It's a city of roses. Yeah. City of roses. That's what it is. Shout out Esperanza Spalding. Yeah, that's out here. It's nice. It looks like it's going to rain, so that's cool. It is a little overcast today. It is a little overcast. It was about 90 yesterday, though. But uh, yeah, here in Overcast, Portland, Oregon, uh, we are back behind the mic for you. And let's just kick it right off with some wind shares. Starting out with the slate for the weekend on the DJ front, um, I will be at Lulu Bar, of course, Lulu Fridays tonight, uh, June 9th. And then Saturday, that'll start at 10 p.m. There from 10 p.m. till late. Saturday, June 10th, I will be at Bible Club from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Pounces Playground. Come out, pull out, check out the vibe. It's a really good one. And then Sunday, I'll be back there from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Sunday night as well. So a couple Bible Club hits this weekend, and it's been good so far. The new residency there has been great. Again, called Pounces Playground. There's been some people coming out, having a great time. Everybody's been enjoying the vibe of the perfect time of year for the backyard patio vibes over there. Good food, good drinks. So definitely pull up. And, of course, I'll be having my uh, R&B Neo Soul hits on deck at Lulu Bar here tonight. Also, make sure you go and purchase a newspaper from a Street Roots vendor. Um, first off, because it's for a great cause. It's a great newspaper. You're putting money in people's pop- pockets who well deserve and need the funds. And also, I was published in the paper this week. Uh, the article that I wrote on Brittany Griner's return was published in this week's paper. Um, I was able to speak with Senator Ron Wyden about her return. I was able to speak with Oregon's own Evina Westbrook about her return. I was able to speak with Atlantic Records recording artist Simba, who performed on her first game back halftime show. So um, it was a real good conversation that I had with those three. I had a ball, obviously, being able to go down to Los Angeles and cover it, and it was a fun article to write. And although, you know, obviously this whole grinder return has gotten a lot of national coverage, I think it was really dope because I was able to write this in more of an Oregon-centric way and and really speak to some of the Oregon ties in regards to Griner's timeline and her return back to the basketball floor. So, um, yeah, if you're here in the state of Oregon, if you're here in the city of Portland, definitely go pick up a paper from a local Street Roots vendor and uh, go give it a read. Again, a fun article to write and just, you know, something that I was glad to be able to write about. And, again, having the Oregon ties to it I think was super dope. Um, Senator Wyden, who's been a big women's basketball advocate, um, who sponsored – a, a resolution, a, sen- a bipartisan Senate resolution, by the way, um, you know, calling for Brittany Griner's release last July. And then, of course, just months after that, she ended up being released. Um, and I would definitely say that that had some influence on why the Biden administration decided to, yes. you know, get Brittany Griner back here on American soil. So give it a read. Go check it out. Support a Street Roots vendor. Buy a paper weekly. You know, it's a weekly publication over at Street Roots, always good stuff. Also, I've been making some news appearances this week. I was on uh, KGW News this week, so go ahead and check that out. I was also, um, today actually, it'll be out at some point today, I uh, was on Coin News as well. It's been a lot of big news going on on the homeless front here in the market. Um, for KGW, I spoke about, and I actually am glad that I, I can speak about it here because Friday, today is the final day. But if you know anybody out there that is unhoused, 
um, Home Forward, which is Oregon's biggest housing authority. The state of Oregon's biggest housing authority has opened up a wait list um, for housing vouchers, um, Section 8 vouchers, essentially. And there's only 2,000 people that are going to be able to get these vouchers, but the application process began on June 5th, and it ends at 11.59 p.m. tonight on June 9th. So Monday to Friday, um, we've been having vendors and non-vendors, people that are unhoused, come over to Street Roots, help get them signed up. Um, you can find it on Home Forward's website. They also have a hotline number that you can call as well. So I was on KGW to talk about that a little bit earlier this week. So I'm sure if you surf the web, you can find it. Um, now I was on Coin today because unfortunately, you know, we had to vote. Um, the, the the city council had to vote on this camping ban situation. So I got to talk with Coin News a little bit about that today. Um, so yeah, go ahead, check all that stuff out. But Definitely. If you know anybody that is unhoused, do what you can to help at least get them signed up. It'll be like a lottery situation where the applicants will get picked in a lottery for a Section 8 voucher. There's still plenty more work to do in this market as far as housing is concerned. But any chance that we get for people to be housed is a is a big opportunity. So go ahead. Help help a neighbor if you can. At least, you know, help them get signed up because. The last time that this happened was seven years ago. And this is Oregon's biggest housing authority that we're talking about here. That is home forward. And like I said, this is the state of Oregon. So um, it isn't an opportunity that comes often. Um, last time, and, and, and this will be a little bit of discourage, a little bit discouraging, but I, I'll just talk through it anyway. The last time this happened, I think it was 3,000 vouchers that were given out. It was about 16,000 applicants. This time around, it's 2,000 vouchers that are going to be given out, and they're expecting more than 20,000 applicants. Now, again, that, that obviously sucks from a numerical standpoint, and I get that. And, you know, as I was kind of talking to the reporter over at KGW, you know, that was a question that was posed to me. And while, yeah, it can be looked at as – just not favorable numbers. Like <laughs> I get that clearly. Like a regression. You know what I mean? It, it, the precedent it, it, already set. Absolutely. Hmm. Um, at the same time, the way I try to look at it, and oftentimes the way that I try to like look at the work that I do is, this is going to be a really, really big deal for the 2,000 people that do actually receive these vouchers. So, while well, yeah, I agree with you. It's a regression in some ways. Um, the crisis is for real here in this market. But for those 2,000 people that are going to get selected via this lottery, this means absolutely everything. Right. So, it's not regression for them. You know what I'm saying? So right. why it can be looked at is there's so much, so much, so much more work to do. And I, and I alluded to that on KGW. Um, this, this is a big deal to where I don't care if you're one of 30,000, 40,000, however many thousand. I'm trying to get as many people signed up as possible to give as many people a chance to be able to receive one of those vouchers. So don't look the other way because it sounds like uh, not that big of a deal. If I help somebody get signed up, they probably won't get that voucher anyway. Just think of it as those 2,000 people need this a whole lot more than your own belief system of feeling like you don't need to take the time to help somebody to get signed up because the numbers are shitty. And that's the way that I, I look at it, and uh, I would encourage you all to look at it that way as well. Uh, that's it, man. I mean, that's that's 
that's the most important thing on the docket today. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I look forward to reading your article, man. I'm going to pick up uh, Street Roots. If you don't see anybody who's selling Street Roots in your day-to-day, then you need to be outside more. That's probably – and you're in this city, you should be outside more because they're everywhere. So Absolutely, absolutely. You got any wind shares? I do, but it's uh, not as important as that. <laughs> so I, I want to leave. I want to leave the listeners. The last one share they hear is go find somebody and help them sign up. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, with that said, then let's just jump into some content here. Uh, it's got to be the NBA Finals. Now, I came on this episode last week and I gave this long-winded explanation <laughs> about the fact that yeah. while these finals, I believe, are great for the game of basketball from a purist standpoint, these finals are absolutely shit for the game of basketball from a business standpoint. And I think that has been proven over and over and over and over again since these finals have started. And I'm going to name a few ways that that's been proven. The headlines that have been leading the NBA has been, and I'm just naming a few, John Morant with a toy gun, Zion Wilson, I mean, Zion Williamson with his uh, freaky deaky situation that he got going on. <laughs> Chris Paul got waived. Anything bye else? Bye-bye. Uh, uh, LeBron. LeBron might retire, and we Cincinnati know he ain't going to retire. Out. A Cincinnati fake out with <laughs> retirement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, these have been the leading headlines in the NBA while we're in the most important part of the season for the NBA, right. which is the NBA Finals, which is why I want to make sure – that we sit here and we give the prop the proper amount of time, coverage, and respect to the game of basketball and not the business of basketball, which we clearly see the generating of these headlines more so favor the business of basketball than the actual NBA Finals yeah. as the Denver Nuggets take a 2-1 lead against the Miami Heat. And my goodness, what a game from... Are we talking about the best duo in basketball here in Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic? Yes. Uh, yes. And yes. So here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing, bro. Here's the thing, bro. It's I, I, I got to say one thing real quick. Go for I it. I came on the podcast and we were and during that same episode and I said, Nikola Jokic, I'm paraphrasing myself here, but I basically said that he, in order for him to get there, what I want to see from him is he's going to have to try to do things outside of what he normally does to try to get to maximize his teammate. I mean, he's going to have to probably go to his B game here because Miami's such a prolific, you know, defense and just their, their scheme is so great, but I was 100% wrong. That dude, <laughs> that dude plays the same game he's that he does that good. game one of the regular season as he does game three of the final, except this time he gave you 20 rebounds too. Yeah. He, he had the first time ever, um, in the in NBA in the NBA Finals, that we've had a 30-20-10 triple double. Also, the first time ever that we had two players on the same team with a thirty-point triple double in the same game, and I think that's ever in basketball. In basketball, not, not just not the just finals. That's the first time yeah. ever that we've seen right. two players on that's the right. same team have a thirty-point triple double in the same game. Period. Don't matter what part of the year it is. So, um, (laughs) yeah, man. This, like I said, for one, I do think that they are the best duo in basketball. Yeah. And which is may seem outlandish to say because Jamal Murray is not an all-star. Well, I mean, he didn't play all this season. 
So I think there was some eligibility issues yeah, with games played. For sure. And, and he, he started off rocky, not to mention that he's coming off of a devastating ACL injury that's not too far removed. I get all I get all of that. But what I'm saying is, in today's NBA, it is a little shocking to me. Or it maybe it shouldn't be as shocking to me. Because just last week I talked about the evolution of the game. And we were talking about, like, you know, the Miami Heat and what it is that they do. And just, like, what we've been able to see is that more of a reflection of team culture and right. team camaraderie. And I'm more so alluded to it being more of a reflection of the evolution of the game and how roster spot one to 15, everybody is just so damn good right. that it kind of lessens that, oh, you got to be an all-star to be this good of a player. Or because I have a certain amount of all-stars on my team, my team's expectations are supposed to be at a certain level. Again, we just saw Chris Paul, who's a perennial all-star, get waived, and he was playing alongside two other all-stars, couldn't even get to the conference finals. I know he got hurt and all the things, which is, again, nothing new. But for for Jamal Murray, a player who has established himself as I mean, especially if they go and win a championship, we got to start talking about this dude as a top five guard in the NBA. That wasn't something that we expected to be saying by the end of this season in a league that has sort of become a guard-driven league in a lot of ways. Well, the only reason why we're not having that conversation is because of that injury. When there was bubble action between him and Donovan Mitchell, that was not a question. Yeah, but and, it was the bubble. The question was that it was the yeah, bubble. That, sure. <laughs> that was the question itself. Then, okay, but then, you know, if you go and you're, you're you're looking right now, okay, let's see, who are the best teams in that bubble situation? Guys like Jimmy Butler, our best players really, Jimmy Butler, Jamal Murray. I mean, shit, the Lakers got to the conference finals. And they were they were the bubble champions. So I mean, I think that that I think that that conversation is kind of deaded in the yeah. sense that like we kind of I, I don't know what that even was spurred from that they'd be like, oh, the basketball isn't as valuable. It was it was a conversation I, that I was like the never. Rim, the rim was still ten feet and it was ninety four feet across. So I don't know what we're talking. It, about. It here. was only a conversation that I was willing to entertain from like a troll standpoint. I do still think that there's something to home court advantage. I do think that there's still something to those elements of the postseason, having to travel, having a home crowd, um, and that felt a little bit more AAU style. But for me, it was never an argument that I was willing to lean into because at the end of the day, I was just glad that we had basketball at that point in time in oh, the yeah. bubble, bubble rather than not. So if us having basketball meant that I had to legitimize that season, that half a season, that quarter of a season, whatever it is that you want to call it in the bubble, I'm with it all the way because I would rather legitimize that and have basketball than try to figure out a way to try to say that it wasn't as legitimate yeah. because of the elements that I just spoke to. So for me, it was always that. So LeBron's got four rings. They count. The bubble counts. Yeah. All that. Well, I mean, and, 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 and count the two-man game between Jokic and Murray as going to work pretty much every time. Yeah. And you know what I noticed uh, with the way that Jamal Murray plays off the ball in that two-man high pick-and-roll stuff with Jokic? You know who he looks like as he's running around off-ball screens? He looks like Steph Curry a little bit. Just in the in the in the the moves that he makes off the ball and the spots that he tries to get to and the paths that he takes. It's so important, man, because if you just Keep running. Yeah. I, and you have a guy like Jokic who's seven feet tall and can make pinpoint passes all day long. 
ultimately, you're going to be open. Well, that was the question that I was about to ask. How much do you credit that? And this even goes for Steph Curry, who we often give a lot of credit for not only his ability to shoot and how lethal he is with the ball in his hands, but he's every bit as much of a threat without the ball in his hands. But now that you consider Steph Curry plays with a front court player like Draymond Green, who's a proven very good passer, yeah. Just period. Forget for his position and the fact that he's a front court player, but he's a special passer. Like Draymond Green is absolutely special when it comes to being able to pass the ball. Now you look at Jokic, who's another front court player who is absolutely special at being able to pass the ball. How much of that credit do you give to somebody like a Curry or like a Murray more so than you would to these front court passers that are like generational passers for their position? It is everything. Yeah. It is everything. It's the gravity, bro. It's the gravity. Jamal Murray, and this is what I like about Jamal Murray's game, and this is what I like about the Nuggets game, Yeah, is that... And, and I heard Jeff – I have to shout out Jeff Van Gundy because he was on the low post today, and he was talking about, you know, that in the league today you see a lot more value in the three-pointer. That's not – that's an old trope, but it's like – Analytics. The value – but the value of getting an open look uh, right underneath the basket, especially as quickly as the Denver Nuggets do in transition, is immensely more. Like, it, like, yeah. like, like late in – Late in games where you see Miami trying to go for two for ones, Denver's playing like just good enough defense to where they're going to get that stop. And it doesn't matter. Miami has 23 turnovers for the whole series thus far. Yeah. That's very, very low. That would, you would say, okay, then there's not a lot of opportunity to make transition points if that's the case for Denver, except they're getting a ton of transition buckets because as soon as that ball comes off the rim, they're running. You know they, the game. You know the game. Because a part of that question was legitimate, but another part of that question was a setup. Because I do agree with you 100% that it does come down to the gravity. The gravity yeah. of a shooter, as special as Steph Curry. And quite frankly, I think when it comes to having a pure jump shot, Jamal Murray is top five in that regard, too, dude, totally. in the NBA. The shots I mean, he was making. It's, oh, it's Steph. It's Dame. Insane. And it's, and it's damn near Jamal, Jamal Murray. <laughs> it's damn Yo, and, and here's, and here's, Devin Booker would be the other and, player and, and, that and I would know, that I would put in that conversation and, as well. And another wrinkle about that is like, let's say, let's let's talk about the comparison you made to like Draymond to Jokic, for instance. Yeah, like Jokic is so good around the basket, operating in that painted area to where he can. I mean, so many times he'll throw stuff up, and you're like, it clangs off the rim, and you're like, that's going to bounce out, and it just doink, doink, and yeah, drops. Yeah, touch. Like, His touch, touch is impeccable. feather. For sure. And so when you have a guy that's like, <laughs> I don't need as much space in this traffic to finish little shots, it allows, talking about gravity, it allows a guy like Jamal Murray to be like, okay, since, since this push and pull between our two-man game is so, like, sporadic, I don't have to take that step back three anymore. Yeah. I can take that 15 to 18 footer. And if somebody closes out hard on me, I, that's a bounce pass away to Jokic feather touching it in. And it's so the, be a sp- the space that they give each other based on just the way that they, their feel f- for the game is, is insane. Like the, just the, this, what they're doing is like, and that's why I stand tall on the, on the, they're the best duo in the, in the league today Yeah, yeah. because they just, I, I don't care if there's more talent on one side or the other, but like these guys dynamicism together is just totally like it's total flow state. Yeah. They get it. All they the got time. it figured out.
and they I don't figure think, it out. and I don't think that Miami has it. Do you, I think, when you say that, we all I think everybody knew that Miami was the underdog coming into this series. When you say you don't think Miami has it, do you mean that as in they probably don't win another game in this series? <laughs> they're gonna have no, they're gonna have another. I have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're gonna have another night where that's Gabe, what I said. Gabe last Vincent, week. Max Struess, and Caleb Martin <laughs> are gonna. <laughs> you no, should have said Jimmy before you said those. No, no, I'm talking. About, <laughs> no, hold on, no, I'm saying. No, I'm saying like they're they're gonna hit open threes. You know what I mean? Like that is really the difference here. But it's are they like, gonna get a lot of open threes? Because that's the part of it. I was on. Uh, I was on Justin. At, well, whose show was I on? I was on. Chad doing show. No, no, because here's the thing. Justin, I usually, I'm on Justin's show every Tuesday morning. Right, right, right. But without Justin there, Justin, for whatever reason, swapped with Chad, I guess, that day. And so Justin co-hosted the afternoon show with Dwight James. That's usually Chad doing and Dwight James. But Justin hit me that morning like, hey, I'm going to be co-hosting the afternoon show with Dwight rather than my morning show, which I usually do. So I came on to the show at a later time. So I was on Justin and Dwight's show, and that was one of the questions that Dwight James asked me. Well, it was Justin and Dwight's show that day, but usually it's Chad and Dwight. But that was one of the questions that Dwight James asked me was, with Miami being a smaller team, how do you overcome that as a smaller player? Because we've always heard you can't teach size. We know what it means for a team to have more size than, you know, an opponent, opposing team and being able to have an advantage in that regard. And, and you know, I kind of gave him this answer of, you know, as somebody who played an undersized big for a majority of my life, yeah, and I had to play. Career. That's my career. You know what I mean? I, I made it as far as I was able to make it. Being an undersized big, you really have to lean into who you are even more when you're playing against bigger teams, and you just got to be able to dare them to beat you at your own game. Because yeah. the reality of it is, and this is one area where I felt the Warriors lost and where I thought Kerr didn't do a great job coaching was, I felt like he tried to make his team bigger than what they were in that Lakers series, rather than just saying, we have been, we have a history of being able to dance, punish teams. Dance with the one that brought at, you. With, as, with a small ball lineup. Yep. And he could not figure out to just – Lean all the way into that small ball lineup and let them beat you with what you do at what you do best. They if they can do that, you just got to respect it and live with the loss. Yes. But if you try to make your team bigger than what you are and you're trying to do all of these lineup adjustments to try to match up with a team across from you that's going to be bigger than you, regardless of what adjustments you make, you are now playing into their hands and they're now more confident because they're making you adjust to them rather than you making them adjust to you. And so, but with that, I don't think because they do have the size and they do have good defenders over there in Denver, I don't think Struess and Vincent and those no, other they, guys they are going to get a bunch of open threes well, <laughs> like I mean, like they may have but, but gotten it's not even that. It's in the like, past. I mean, it's not even that. Like, it, go, go look at game three uh, last night, and then you look at the other, like the opposite end of the floor. Guys like, you know, Aaron Gordon, guys like Bruce Brown. You know, these are not traditionally, like, spot-up guys. But when you're running a two-man high pick and roll like that, like that's kind of the what the, the, the other three dudes on the floor kind of default to is they stand in corners and yeah. they look for open, you know what I'm saying, kick yeah. out buckets. 
but they try Aaron to find Gordon, a but good Aaron angles. Gordon isn't a spot up shooter by any stretch of the imagination. And fortunately for them, last night he was like, "I'm not going to settle standing in the corner and be out of this play. I'm going to attack rebounds. I'm going to cut hard, and he's getting rewarded by that." And, and he's that, the best defender on their team, which is why best. I said Miami and, and Gabe Vincent see, ain't going to be getting open threes now, like again, that. Now again, again, but I, I do still think the Heat will win one more game in this series. I, I, I'm going to give them one more game. Yeah, to, to, I, I, game four. I, I, I said I said four. Nuggets in six, so I'm I give sticking them game with four. It. I give them game four. They get one at home to. Give one to their fans, and then it's over. And it's, I, it's I, I, over. I tend to agree with yeah. that, but I mean, it's just like, like I said, like they don't have the, they just don't have like Bam Adebayo was having a lot of success, like cutting really hard, especially early on. They're starting Kevin Love, so that's like moving Nikola Jokic away from the basket because he was hitting threes every time he started, and so I gave Bam some like, yeah, I mean, like like a lot of space to operate, but he, he's just not like a like a really like technically proficient offensive guy, especially when it comes to like package and stuff. So like he's getting his I stuff it's, all off the, off the, you know what I mean? I think it's more than that, man. And again, I, again, well, just I'm, speaking I'm just, to I'm just, that's just the beginning of the problem. No, yeah, for sure. And that's why, you know, taking Cause, it cause a step got, further. Cause it's gotta be those two guys, Bam and Jimmy, you gotta be the ones to be the X factors and they don't have the equipment. Yeah. But the, yeah, I agree. And that's what I was going to say to take it a step further. Like I said, when Dwight asked me that question, I'm like, yeah, Dwight, I was I was a, you know, Division three basketball player. I was an all-conference player, all these things. But the reality of it is I've played with guys uh, that have made it to the league, that are still in the league today. I've played against guys that have made it to the league and are still in the league today. And I've won I've a whole lot more. Chops every time. I, no, <laughs> not every time. <laughs> what, what, I, what I'm, what I'm going to say is I've won a whole lot more than I've lost, yeah. and I've beaten teams that have had, you know, guys with more hype than maybe I did and, and won in a lot of those matchups. But I've also taken my fair share of losses in matchups where this dude is just bigger and he's better. And at that point, you just got to take it. It comes with the off. game. You know take what I mean? You got to tip, tip your hat off. Like, regard, it doesn't matter too much what I do out here. Like, this dude, he's got some size on me, and he's got a gift. He's gifted. You know what I'm saying? And I've been in those scenarios, too. And that's the scenario I feel like Bam is in against Joker. Bam's a great athlete. He's established himself as as a key piece, obviously, to this Miami Heat. And I'm going to call it a run at this point, what they've been able to do since going to the bubble, because they've been consistently at least getting to the conference finals. And and that's something that I've bet against year after year after year, and they've proven me wrong year after year after year. But now he's just at this point where – you got to deal with Joker, who's bigger than you and better than yeah, you. Exactly. And once you get to that point, you just got to hold that L. And it, it comes with the territory. You know, in the story, David and Goliath, they try to teach you might over height, you know. But David never had to go drop 30 on a guy like Joel Embiid or Jokic or something. He would have no snowballs chance in hell. So I don't want to hear it. It's like they're just a better basketball team. Now, again, I give Miami the thing. I'm just happy that we talked – hoops like for real hoops for a second for because sure. for because sure. you're right i think that that is what is is needs to be highlighted the most although i will say this because i was talking to people last night when i was watching the game at this bar that i was at and everyone's like well who are you going for you know and i'm like i just want to see good basketball and then 
well, uh, this this gal asked me, she was like, well, what's the, you know, she's like, you're into the sports journalism thing. You know, what is it? And I'm like, well, if I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of really compelling narratives here that I think are sorely misrepresented and underrepresented. And if they were, then you could, I, like I said, the NBA has a problem. The, the, and the problem is, is that they don't know how to manage the burgeoning brands that are popping up all over the place in the league yeah. from different avenues. They, they don't know how to manage that. I mean, Adam Silver, you got to give him as much credit, I guess, as you can, but it's like, you're still, you were David Stern's like, you know, underling. And so you're still a part of that. And I just don't see him being able to really figure out how to usher in the new wave of, of so brands. That's going to be my next question. I who, think who I, takes the blame. Yeah, okay. Is it Adam Silver? Because, I blame the media personally. Well, he he's a, he's a, okay. All right, go ahead. Personally, sorry. Finish, finish your statement. No, I mean it's crazy. I was just on the phone about an hour before we record with Jason Verrett, mm. um, and Jason Verrett has a project that he's working on behind the scenes that I won't get into the details of because I allow him to do that himself. Um, Jason Verrett, obviously NFL veteran, Pro Bowl cornerback, so on and so forth. We've had him on this podcast. Friend, um, friend of the show. Um, but we were talking about just the media and the direction of the media. And I think, you know, he was just kind of talking about how, you know, guys like him and and other players are basically coming in and starting to swoop up this media space because of their credibility when it comes to them being in locker rooms, obviously their experience as players, so on and so forth. But I think another piece of that is because of that, you have this other side of the media that has to look at them as competition because at the end of the day, if I'm watching a game and you're watching a game, I'm going to take the guy who's, who's played word more so than I'm going to take that of Joe Schmo, who's just been covering the game for right. X amount of years. But because of that, I think the other side of the media is starting to, to attach itself to these stories hmm. beyond the game because they're reaching for something more they're, because their competition is players who can dissect the game up and down, left and right, top to bottom, more so than they can regardless of how many articles they've written, regardless of how much they've covered the game. And that side of the media still holds a lot of influence. That side of the media is still the majority in that space. Yeah, we're seeing a new wave of you know, a, a, a big wave of player and former athletes that are now becoming media. But that side of the media still exists. And I think still today is a little bit ahead of, you know, what they see coming on their heels now, which is these former athletes that can talk about and dissect the games from the floor to the gridiron, to the wood, to the hardwood, to the locker room. So I think it's the media that still has heavy influence over the NBA that is attaching itself to these other like odd ass storylines because of the fact that that's how they're going to be able to stay relevant. And that's how they're still going to be able to continue to get clicks. Let's talk about Zion Williamson and his baby mama drama. And let's talk about John Morant with a toy gun. And I'm not saying that John Morant and Zion Williamson are making the best of decisions, but I'm also saying that that's not particularly something that their peers are going to want to talk about because they're in, you get what I'm saying? So because of that, who's going to, who's going to attach themselves to those stories is going to be these people that know that, 
well, while these former players that are now becoming media are becoming my competition now, how can I find a story that can be attractive and that people are going to read and are going to have and is going to have some drama that I know that they probably won't be as willing to touch because their relationship to the fraternity, if you will, of being yeah. an athlete mm. or a mm. sorority, if we're talking women's sports. Oh. they're not going to be willing to take it as far as I'm going to be willing to take it because I'm just the dude that covers them that they don't really like and not going to give me their whole truth anyway. <laughs> you know okay, well, well, let, let, let me let me for the sake of argument here because I it. really see like that there are two sides that need each other in a way. Like the the journalists need more credibility in regards to the insights of the game. Because they, we've seen, especially now, they don't really have any. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and I mean comparatively, comparatively especially, especially right. now, right? Because all of these dudes are, are are media trained and they're coming in. Now that is not to say that there is a large majority or or the beginnings of this, you know, uh, exodus from athlete to journalist that there is a lot of journalistic integrity. For sure. being injected into that side either. I agree. You know what I'm saying? So, I agree. So it so there is a cohesion that I think needs to be found. But I think at the end of the day, dude, it's like if you're going to be a journalist, then you need to swallow whatever is stuck in your throat and figure out a way to not attach yourself sort of socially, parasitically to these like – stories that you think are going to generate clicks because it really is just like lame ass swagger jacking trying to get in where you think you fit in but yeah, you don't right and so it, it, because because ultimately like what, what what happens is is that people get scorned on that end and then the journalism turns yellow yeah and then it's like now you're just going against all the tenants that you are trying to like that uphold. you've been traditionally trained, trained to, to do your yeah, entire life for sure and so on the, but on the athlete side it's like you can't and this is, I mean, this is a lukewarm take, but it's like you can't hate on a guy who really likes you and and really thinks you're great. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. It's like, you know, being a good leader is is not always just shitting on somebody well, and like I think, making him feel bad. You I know? think like the balance you got you got to eat a little bit of that to be like, let me try to bring this guy along. Not a guy like Skip Bayless, but I mean, there are yeah. guys in the game that it's like if he just had a little bit of ism, he could probably be. You know what I mean? A part of the, the solution. Well, I think that's where the balance comes in. And I'm not saying that the journalists that and the media that I speak of, that leads to why we have the particular problem that we speak of, of all of these other headlines taking more precedent over the actual NBA finals. I'm not saying that there is not a need for them at all. I'm just pointing out a flaw of theirs. And so I do think, you know, where you have this kind of, huge wave of now athlete media or former athlete media, however, really present athlete media. A lot of these athletes are starting their own podcast. Draymond's going and playing a game and then going to the hotel room and, and recording a podcast right <laughs> after the game. Yeti, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. <laughs> so like, so like, so like, but, and I do think that there are aspects of the game that the former athletes and the present athletes just will not cover. Like if right. I use Draymond for an example, Draymond's never going to speak about game plan. Draymond's never going to speak about 
certain things to the yeah, yeah, Draymond. It's a of interest. He, he damn sure as hell didn't speak about him punching on Jordan Poole, and that's what I was waiting for when he came back to, to recording his podcast. But we had other people that, regardless of how you like it, did their part to do thorough journalism and find out more information. We got a tape leaked, however it got leaked. That's it wasn't because of them. You know what I'm saying? So it's like I think there are those two dynamics there at play, if you will, where they both need each other. But I also think when you speak to, like, journalists today, my advice would be in the seat that I sit in, and I also was talking to— As a journalist. As a journalist, and I also was talking to Verrett about this today. I'm like, yeah, don't get me wrong. I played to a certain level to where now I'm an analyst at Portland State. I'm not an analyst at Portland State on ESPN Plus if I don't have no college basketball experience, most likely. But I'm also at Pacific as play-by-play, which I think more speaks to me being more traditionally trained as a journalist, me getting a degree in journalism, so on and so forth. But where I think journalists today, they have to be willing, what I think they have to be willing to do is dig deeper when it comes to the edges of the game. They have to... Hey, I'm more so do it in sports and politics. You know, while sports is the centerpiece and the game is the centerpiece of sports, there are politics on the edges of sports that cause those two to intersect. But because I do legitimate work in the political space and obviously still got my sports background from a player to a journalist, having covered the game, broadcasting, whatever it is that may be, while Jason Verrett, might have a bigger platform than I do, and he might be able to fast-track himself in the position to be able to do what looks to be more in that space because they're going to look at his following versus my following. The volume. You know what I'm saying? He might be able to get certain opportunities that I probably wouldn't be able to get as as swiftly, but if it comes to a conversation where we got to talk about how politics intersect with sports, I, I I can run laps around them in that regard. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, to an extent, obviously, there's certain things he can speak to from experience. There's other things that I can speak to from me actually being in the political space and knowing how politics work and being able to associate that, so associate that with sports in a way that he probably just couldn't do as much because he doesn't have as much of a political background than I do. So that's where... As a journalist, cover the business of sports more. Dig deeper into the business of sports more. Dig deeper into how politics intersect with sports more. Dig deeper into, like, the cultural aspect of sports. And you can still use what happens in these games as context to whatever it is that you're referring to and you're discussing and talk about as you dig into more of these intersectional spaces. So that would be my advice as a journalist is, don't try to compete with these dudes that got bigger platforms that played the game and have more experience than you at the game of the game that it is that you're trying to cover, but dig into some of the other areas that they might not be able to get into as heavily because you're able to have a different kind of background and perspective in it. And I think a lot of sports journalists that are coming up are being misguided by trying to be one trick ponies and saying, I'm just going to be strictly a sports or, or, journalist. Yeah, they, they Don't do that. Lane. It's like it's like it's like when you're driving. You know, you you can get into whatever lane you want, but if you're driving slow as shit, everyone's going to get honking at you. So like it's not you're not just uh, immediately valuable in the space because you found a niche. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can't just be like, "Well, I'm going to be 
the the politics in sports guy. And it's like, I mean, you said edge of sports. It's like, okay, well, there's Devon Pouncey and then Dave Zirin and then Jules. Like, so it's like you're not you're not getting into. I disagree with that a little bit. I, I think that's the point. I'm making that opposite point from that. I think I, you I, do try to, as a journalist, instead of trying to compete against the players who can dig deeper into what's happening on the hardwood or on the gridiron, you have to be willing to cover more than just the oh, sport. I know, but I, I look, maybe I'm cynical, but I just think that I think that the best thing you can do as a person is to figure out your limitations and like how that, how understanding your limit. I mean, I, I'm not trying to put a cat. We, we, we live in a world where it's like everything is, you get everything that you can work for. And if you imagine, and it's like, that's not true. It's just not like, and, and so, and so, you know, I, I just feel like a lot of people think that like, really refining their individuality makes their voice like really palpable and really important. And it's like, but if you're not doing the, if you're not coming at it from the perspective, like if you're a journalist that is trying to cover sports, you know, when it sounds like me, I sound goofy trying to intellectualize the X's and O's of basketball when I never played in college. Uh So it's like, it's going to sound that way. But if, but, but if there are so many people that that's what they do, you know what I mean? They go, okay, well, I'm going to try to catch up with you here. I'm, I'm still I'm, a little lost, but I'm trying to catch you here. When you, it's, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the conf, it's the, it's the conflict because guys get threatened by the new journalists that are ex players because they're good at journalism now. Uh-huh. And they go, that guy knows the game better than me. Most of the time they go, well, I'm going to try to like hyper intellectualize the game to try to make myself sound smarter so I can compete with whoever is talking about the game that actually knows. Right. And we see it all the I'm every here. time they get dunked on. Every time. Okay, I'm here with you and so then, far. And then there are dudes that they go to a certain point in that in that pursuit that they go, "Okay, well instead of doing that, I'm going to try to be this niche guy." Like I understand that you're arguing for like find, you know, like a specificity and really like hone in and master right. that. But it's like if you're not if you're not moving through the proper channels initially to get to that point, then you're going to be a fish out of water when you get there. Well, that's why I say young journalists. If I'm giving advice to young okay. journalists, a lot of the older journalists I know are that was making a roundabout way. Yeah, I finally caught I finally caught up with you. But that's why I say young journalists. The older journalists, we're seeing how hard of a time. That they're it's having because they're trying to cross over into these niche spaces too late. And I mean, and Michelle Tafoya, I think, is a prime a example of that. that. We, we covered this. So when year. I'm saying to young journalists and people that are coming into the game, you're better off finding your niche earlier yes. and getting your well, start in the industry by finding a niche more so than saying, I'm but, just going to be a sports journalist because it sounds like the cool thing to do because you're going to eventually get to a point where you get challenged in that okay. way. And if you're not prepared for it, but, then it's going to hurt you in the end, whether that way be because you're trying to right. speak sports against a guy who's going to probably nine times out of ten more credible than you because they've actually played within the sport or because you're finally starting to realize, damn, the jobs are starting to slow down. You know what I'm saying? I need to try to remix this shit. I need to sort of reinvent myself, if you will. But 
I've honed in on being this particular guy so long that I'm struggling to reinvent myself. So I always tell younger journalists, like, be open to covering any and everything. Because for one, a part of the reason why I love being a journalist, because I'm constantly learning. I always get to learn. You know what I'm saying? I'm I'm constantly learning. And I think a lot of young journalists try to stick to tradition of the trade and then they find themselves in a position where the business side does matter and things start to get sticky for them and they try to make these hard pivots and it doesn't work out for them. Mm. But the pivots tend to be a little bit easier when you're a little more open-minded and you're a little bit more willing to cover more than just what it is that you want to cover and it allows you to bring those things within the sport in a way that only you can because you've been covering more than just the sport itself. So that's where I think as a young journalist, don't think that you can't go cover politics and then come back and cover right. sports later on. Like there's like don't think that it, you you can only do sports but you can't do news. Don't think that way. Be willing to do news, be willing to do sports, be de- be willing to do music, be willing it. to do finance, it, be willing man. to do business, be willing to, be willing to do all of these things because in my experience there's usually at some point it's all going to come back around even if you decide to find yourself or you end up finding yourself in a place where you're covering something different. And that knowledge is always going to stick with you. And at points you'll be able to use that knowledge that you've gained covering news in the sports space. And that's more so what I'm getting at when I say for young journalists – be open-minded. Yeah, your dream may be to be a sports journalist. That don't mean you can't take the news route to get there. And it doesn't mean that the news route can't particularly be your biggest asset yeah. once you get Even there. Even retroactively. Yeah. It's, it, the paths are not – it's not linear. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. That's so, funny that this conversation got, got to Hey, man, it is what it is, man. <laughs> Wake up and win, baby. <laughs> Wake well, up and win. Uh, well, well, if if I may then, Devon, because I got I, I got something that I'd like to pivot into. Segway, baby. Uh, uh, there was an article that was published today on The Nation uh, by Jules Boykoff and Dave Zirin. Friends of the show, by the way. Friends of the show. And this article, and I, I implore everyone listening to go check that out and, and read it. And it's about the Paris 2024 Olympics. Yes. In that they are, when I say they, I mean, you know, the government and also whatever sort of tech companies or whatever uh, companies that have all of this AI surveillance equipment. Yes. That they are running, exp- quote unquote, experiments on in terms of or in order to try to better basically police the event. Yes. I mean, I, I guess if you want to put it in layman's terms. For sure. But I what I want to talk about about this article mm-hmm. is not the 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 policing. I want to talk about the biopolitics of it for okay. a second. Because I don't think that there are a lot of people or at least I mean I'm my 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 worldview is is not as wide open as it could be. I'm trying to expand it every day, so I'll say that before I say this. But I just don't see a lot of people talking about this stuff. I think guys like Jules and Dave are the dudes that are sort of on the forefront of trying to really assess these intersections of sports and politics 
and win. Or sports and technology. Well, see, that that's where the biopolitics thing comes into play. Be willing, to, co- be willing to cover tech, you future sports journalists, they, because they, it might come look, a point where you can keep, be writing about AI in the Olympic Games. What keep, do you know? <laughs> they, keep in the, they, they keep in the article mentioning that the Olympics is a built-in state of exception. Mm-hmm. And that it's it i i think that they have i would imagine that they have a lot of trust in their readers to know what that is maybe i'm just dumb but i feel like i barely know what that is and and from what i understand is a state of exception is like a an event or a place or a governance or something that is designed to to not have government ultimately to otherize people in order to, I mean, based on history, usually enslave them or put them in camps or something to that effect. Or police them, or, which, or, which has well, a direct I mean, correlation to slavery. Incarceration? Oh, yeah. Of course. I mean, that's that's slavery as far as I'm concerned. But Well, police started off as slave catching. Of so, course. Yeah. So, so, so they keep saying that, right, Devon? And, and I'm looking at that, and I think that... You know, I, I, I'm very weary about the the situation because... Basically, to, to give you an abridged version of the article, they're saying they're using AI surveillance equipment to experimentally figure out how to like, I mean, we're talking like, you know, all the stuff, you know, facial rec- recognition, stuff like that. And in fact, at one point in the article, they say, yeah, they're going to use facial recognition and I'm paraphrasing racial profiling be damned, which is like the obvious, like, <laughs> it's clearly a problem when, yeah. when you talk about that. We've all, we, there's countless articles that say that this facial recognition programs are, I mean, they're discriminatory and racist. And, and so, but the thing about it that I've, from what I know of my limited education from Pacific University, where I studied biopolitics, and I could be wrong, and maybe Jules and Dave could 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 correct me, but just from from where I'm standing, what I know about state of states of exception is they are the places where you ske- where you schedule and you enact biopolitical events. And when I see stuff like this, I go, well, that is just setting the stage up for a multitude of major biopolitical events that, you know, can have major effects on people, not just racially, bro. Not just racially. Mm-hmm. It goes way beyond that. Other Otherization of people is, is the beginnings of it. Are, are usually racially driven. But I mean, if you go back to like Nazi Germany, you know, we're talking about religion a lot of the time too. And it, and so it's, it's, it's not so myopic in the sense that it's just about race, but you know, you go and read that article and read what these gentlemen are saying, because the 2028 Olympics are coming to Los Angeles. And from what it seems, these guys are hoping that all of this surveillance technology is going to be like refined by the time it gets to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I think it's a cause for major concern. I'm very appreciative of Jules and Dave being on it and doing and doing the work to cover this stuff because I think it's majorly important. And the Olympics are I think that if we're going to look back at 100 years and look at the Olympics as like these these hallmark sort of keystone moments for this whatever we're doing here authoritarian yeah. government but I, I mean and i also just whatever. think you know with with the surveillance and with like heightened surveillance you know a lot of that surveillance i think is going to more so be a direct attack on those that are protesting if you will those that they feel are causing problems or that are 
combating what the brand is of the Olympic Games. And I'm speaking to the event itself, which has become an absolute platform for things such as that, whether it be protesting, um, whether it be, you know, just showing any kind of demonstration. Policing has also been another one because the policing is heightened. And I think it goes kind of hand in hand where you'll be able to kind of more so directly pinpoint and target people that may be like in a group of people that are demonstrating and be able to kind of hone in and really attack them in ways where usually when people are demonstrating or or protesting, it usually has, whether it be race, religion, whatever kind of social dynamic, sexual orientation, whatever kind of social dynamic that it has to it, those people then tend to get targeted in ways that maybe the people that are sitting around them at this event just won't get targeted because they're not the threat to this particular event. So I think with that heightened surveillance with AI and all of those things, it'll be easier to identify people who know their rights and find ways to demonstrate and work around their rights that doesn't make them a direct target where this takes that away from them, even if they are still doing whatever said demonstration it is that they're doing within their own right. So it's just easier to target people that still may be doing something that combats the brand within their rights, but the rights now don't matter as much because we can still easily figure out who you are through this heightened surveillance that we now have. Look, man, and I I hear what you're saying and, and I, you know, and it's quoted in the article where I think it was like a policeman in one of these events I I don't I have to read it again, but basically they're saying that the issue with that is because if you tell that argument to somebody, Mm -hmm. a lame, a casual, whatever, they're going to be like, well, yeah, that sounds, of course, we need heightened security. It's a very huge, you know, global event, whatever. But it's like the problem is, is that they don't put the toys back in the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, we've we've had plenty of conversations with Boykoff about that here. And so, so that's the direct quote pulled from the article. And so, like, I just. Yeah, I just, I, I'm just very worried, and I and I wanted to mention it on the podcast because mm-hmm. it's like I just don't think that like they're I know that there's going to be this is just how it goes. It's they're, just going to make it easier for them to target who they want, who they course, don't want to be there. And and that's what beyond it comes that down. too, and and, I, and I'm just talking about like from a journalistic standpoint too, because we we've talked a lot today about like you know credibility in journalism and things like that, but. I just think that, you know, you just got to know there are people out here covering this stuff and we're going to do the same thing. For sure. For sure. Well, uh, you got anything else before we wrap it up? Yeah. Peace and love. All righty. On that note, we are going to get out of here the only way that we know how. And that is to stay woke and go in. (laughs) 